All right. So then, um, I, I have a some some slides for this one too, but but much fewer than I had for for the stuff on Christology. Um, first of all, uh, <coughs> excuse me. When we talk about the Holy Spirit. Uh, the word for spirit that's used in the Hebrew uh, of the Old Testament is uh, is ruach, and uh, and that word's used in the Old Testament about 378 times, right? Um, and it means not just spirit, although that's one of the meanings it carries. It's a term that has a variety of meanings. It does mean uh, um, spirit, but it can also mean wind. It can also mean breath. Uh, sometimes it seems simply to stand for divine power. But let me stress something it doesn't mean. And I don't mean to offend any of you who are fans of the old King James. Um, which is in many ways an admirable, a very uh, admirable translation, especially given when it was done. Uh, but one thing the term does not mean is ghost. And the tendency historically in English to refer to the Holy Spirit as the Holy Ghost is, is frankly unfortunate. Just because the connotation of ghosts, of a ghost that come with that term, uh, are, are misleading with respect to the Spirit. Uh, in fact, I've even met Christians who actually thought that the Holy Spirit was Christ's ghost, right? Which uh, is deeply problematic, since well, um, Christ uh, Christ is risen, right? Uh, it's probably problematic for lots of other reasons as well. But I just want to make that point. And when I talk about the Greek term that's used for spirit in the New Testament, the same applies. These terms do not mean ghost. Now, the word in Greek is pneuma, right? And like the Hebrew term for spirit, it also can mean wind or breath or even life. And that's particularly interesting that the Greek for spirit can mean wind or breath because, there, and, and of course this is true in the Hebrew too, but especially in the New Testament, there are places where the biblical authors will play off of the double meanings. Uh, in fact, we'll see this when we talk later uh, in a few minutes about, uh, about Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus um, when he talks about the wind blowing wherever it will. Well, he's talking about the Spirit. But, but of course, the way he puts this is, uh, is playing off the double meaning. Um, now, he may be speaking in Hebrew, but the double meaning in Hebrew is there in the Greek, which is uh, what the gospel is being written in as well. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, now that being the case, <clears throat> in Scripture we see the Spirit, Spirit primarily insofar as the Spirit is active within and among the people of God. And I'll come back perhaps and talk a little bit more about this. There is, of course, a significant difference between the role that the Spirit plays in the Old Testament and the role in the New Testament. And why is that? Well, we know, of course, that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within and among the people of God who are the church permanently. So at Pentecost, there's a marked uh, change in the ministry of the Spirit. Whereas in the Old Testament, the Spirit had occasionally come upon individual saints. Right, He had never come to dwell within the whole people of God and even with the individual saints whom the Spirit comes upon in the Old Testament, He never comes upon them permanently. Right? So there's a marked difference once we get to the day of Pentecost because the Spirit comes and dwells in all the people of God and does so permanently. So, uh, That being said, a couple questions I want to go ahead and address up front. Uh, we refer to, and talked a bit about this yesterday, uh, we refer to the Father as the first person of the Trinity, the Son as the second person of the Trinity, and the Spirit as the third person of the Trinity. And you might wonder, well, why do we refer to the Spirit as the third person? In fact, you might also wonder with respect to the Son, why do we refer to Him as the second person? That's a good question. As I stressed last night and again this morning already, the reason for this is not because the Son or the Spirit are less divine than the Father. Right, that's not the reason. Now that being said, 
It is, however, true, and this is an important point uh, as far as the, the, the church's historic thinking about Christ and the Spirit. Uh, God the Son is not a creation. God the Spirit is not a creation. The Father does not create the Son. The Father does not create uh, the Spirit. But it's also true that the proper biblical way of talking about the Son is to speak of Him as begotten of the Father. And the proper way to speak of the Spirit is as proceeding from the Father, or depending on uh, how you land on certain controversies, uh, either proceeding from the Father or proceeding from the Father and the Son together. Now here's the point. Neither the Son nor the Spirit are creatures. They exist necessarily, and they are necessarily divine. And yet, because the Son is rightly thought of as Son and is begotten of the Father, and the Spirit is rightly thought of as proceeding from uh, the Father, there is some sense in which Christians have historically acknowledged that, uh, that the Father's role in, in the divine economy is primary, and then the Son's secondary, and then the Spirit's tertiary, or third. Now, don't misunderstand me. This doesn't mean they're less than fully divine. Uh, this doesn't mean that they're in any way inferior to the Father. But another way of putting this is the church has historically tended to think that the roles the Son and the Spirit play are not accidental. In other words, it's not like the way Christians have historically understood this. It's not like the Father, the Son, and the Spirit got together and drew lots to see who would function as Father, who is Son, and who is Spirit. Right? But rather... In some way, they are who they are and have the roles they have, essentially. Now, this is bordering on stuff it's really hard to wrap your mind around, so I'm going to move away from it. Right? Uh, the way to deal with hard questions is to look the other way. Um, not really. Is the Holy Spirit a person or simply a personification of divine power? Uh, that's another question I want to address briefly. Uh, and the short answer to this is the Spirit is a person not simply a force. Now, again, I've met Christians who have tended to think of the Holy Spirit as the Christian equivalent of the force, right, from Star Wars. I assume you all have probably on occasion heard people talk this way too. Uh, well, that's just frankly unbiblical. The Spirit is not some impersonal force. He is just that, a person, a he. Not an it, not a thing, Certainly not an impersonal force. In fact, if, if the Spirit were not a person, it would make no sense for the Scriptures to speak of the possibility of grieving the Spirit. I mean, after all, what could it mean to grieve a force? right? And as I mentioned last night, uh, when, uh, when, when Peter says to Ananias, you've not lied to men but rather to God, and, and he has said it's to the Spirit you've lied, well, it makes no sense to speak of lying to the Spirit if the Spirit is some impersonal force. Um, and I could continue in this vein. I'm not going to. There are other texts that are relevant here too. I just want to make the point quite strongly that um, the biblical picture of the Spirit is of a person, not merely a force. And, uh, and so that's important to keep in mind. Now, before we talk about the ministry of the Spirit, which will take a few minutes, I think, I want to run through some of the metaphors or imagery that the Scriptures use to describe the Spirit. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is, although we occasionally get imagery or, or metaphors with, or types, as theologians sometimes like to use that term, uh, for the other divine persons, uh, it seems to be that in the Scriptures, and especially in the New Testament, the Spirit gets referred to by way of metaphor, metaphor far more than the Father or the Son do. Uh, perhaps this is because it is harder for us to identify and understand the Spirit than it is for us to understand the Son who has become incarnate or the notion of God the Father, right? But for whatever reason... Um, we, we get a lot of metaphors, a lot of images, a lot of typology for the Spirit. And anytime you have imagery used to describe the Spirit, anytime the Spirit is spoken of in terms of a metaphor, there's a point to the metaphor, right? These aren't just kind of uh, uh, thrown out uh, just because they sound poetic. 
And so what I want to do before we turn to talk briefly about the ministry of the Spirit, what I want to do is is talk a bit about metaphors or imagery that the Scripture uses for the Spirit. Uh, and, and that will help us to see some of the things that by the providence of God, uh, the Spirit does for us and to us and through us. Uh, I don't claim the list I'm going to give you here is exhaustive, but um, but... By the same token, it's it's pretty pretty representative. So, for instance, if you turn to Luke 24, uh, I'm interested in verse 49, but I'm going to start before that. This is Luke 24:44, and in case you don't remember, Luke 24 is in fact the last chapter in the Gospel of Luke. So, right, this is after Christ is risen, right, in that period between resurrection and ascension. And Luke writes this, this is 2444. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written down about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In 45, Luke tells us, then he, Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And one wishes there was a huge insertion right after 45 where Luke gave us all of that content, but unfortunately he doesn't. I mean... Right. This is where Jesus, uh, uh, between resurrection and ascension, opens the scriptures for his disciples and explains how they speak of him all the way through the Old Testament. And Luke doesn't tell us, you know, the content. That's frustrating. It's one thing I really wish had been included, but oh well. 46, and said to them, Jesus says to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things in 49 and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Well, the instruction to his disciples to stay in the city until they are clothed with power from on high is, of course, uh, instruction to stay until the Spirit comes upon them, the Spirit who has been promised by the Father. So here, the language that refers to the Spirit is the language of being clothed with power from on high. And this is interesting, of course. This, This should remind us or point to the fact for us that part of the Spirit's ministry, a significant part of the Spirit's ministry for the church is to empower the people of God, right? To live in the manner that God has called them. And so here the, the disciples are told, hang loose, don't go anywhere because the Spirit who has been promised to you is coming, right? And, and when they're told that, the language used is the language of power. It is the Spirit who will empower the people of God to fulfill the purposes of God. Right? Now that being said, I've already talked in the Q&A time about uh, the description of the Spirit descending upon Christ as a dove. And of course, the imagery of the dove might naturally convey to us imagery of peace and purity, and I don't think that's inappropriate at all. Although, as I said a few minutes ago in the Q&A, I think in the context that, that, uh, that the dove descends upon Jesus, the primary point being made is the dove is descending on Jesus to make a point about the fact that Jesus is Messiah. Uh, so that at the baptism, you have the Father proclaiming that this is his Son, and you have the Spirit descending in a way that indicates that this Son of the Father is in fact Messiah. I'm not going to turn to that text since we already talked about it, you know, in the Q&A time. In Ephesians 1.14, and this isn't the only text where you get this imagery or this metaphor, um, but it's one of the two texts where you do, and so, uh, so I'll go ahead and use this text for this one. Um, in Ephesians 1, you have the Spirit described as in some older translation as earnest, as an earnest. Do you all know what earnest money is? I have to be careful. My students are so young these days. This is often a term they don't know, right? But what is earnest money? Well, earnest money is a money you give someone as a down payment to indicate that you are serious or earnest about the agreement you've come to, right? So it's functionally a down payment or a pledge, Well, Paul describes the Spirit here in these terms, right? I'll start in verse 13 of Ephesians 1. 
In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I'm going to come back in another talk text and talk about this language of being sealed. But uh, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 14, who is the guarantee or down payment or pledge, if you will, of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Now, what does it mean for Paul to speak of the Spirit here as a pledge or a down payment or an earnest or a guarantee, as my translation puts it? Well, the idea is this, right? First of all, the Father has made significant promises to those of us who trust Christ and are His people. Significant promises with respect to the coming of the kingdom and with respect to what the kingdom will be like. And I don't have time to go into details on those, but you all are no doubt familiar with these, at least some if not all of them. Well, the Holy Spirit is given for a variety of reasons to the church at Pentecost, but one of the reasons is to function as a pledge, as a sign of seriousness, as a foretaste, if you will, of the coming kingdom. Of course, if I give you a down payment... I'm giving you a foretaste of that which will come later, although will be much greater. So when the Spirit is given to us as a pledge or an earnest or whatever term we want to use here in English, He is a foretaste in His ministry among us to what we will experience when the kingdom comes in full. A foretaste when the kingdom comes in full, what what we get a taste of by way of the Spirit's ministry here and now will be multiplied greatly. So it seems to me that's that's the point of that language. And of course, since I've been talking about Pentecost, we ought to turn to Acts chapter 2, which is where we get the account of uh, of the uh, of Pentecost and the the spirit. Right, so this is Acts 2:1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly they came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. By the way, notice the, the kind of wordplay, a mighty rushing wind. which is a description of the spirits coming upon them, right? But let that go. It filled the entire house where they were sitting, verse 3, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, the Spirit is described coming upon them in the appearance of tongues of fire. Now, obviously, I I take it this is obvious, the imagery of a tongue here is indicative of the miracle that will be performed as the Spirit comes upon them in this setting, right? Because there will be a, a miracle involving speech. Uh, where they will speak languages they do not know. Uh, maybe that's it, or maybe it's people as they speak will hear them in languages that they're not being spoken in. It's not real clear if this is a miracle of the speech itself or the hearing. Probably the speech itself, but you get the point. But what's the point of describing these tongues as tongues as of fire? Well, it strikes me there are several points that the church has understood this imagery to be conveying to us. First of all, notice, fire is always moving. It's ever active. So also the Spirit of God is ever active among the people of God. Always working. So also, the fire represents purity and cleansing. Fire is a cleansing agent. By the way, so also is water, which is interesting. They're opposites, obviously, in a certain sense, but they're both purification, agents of cleaning. They're also agents by which God, uh, right, with water has once, you know, taken down the earth, so to speak, and He won't do that again, but He will use fire uh, in the coming of the kingdom. Right, so, so first of all, fire... Uh, has been taken to be symbolic of the fact that that God is that the Spirit is ever active in the people of God among the people of God. It, it's been taken to indicate the cleansing nature of the ministry of the Spirit. But of course, fire all the way through the Scriptures is uh, associated with the very presence of God. So, for instance, well, when Moses encounters God on the holy mountain, he encounters Him in the form of a bush that is burning but not consumed. 
right? When you get uh, accounts in the Old Testament of people having visions of God, I have in mind here particularly, for instance, Ezekiel, right? The imagery that we're given when these visions are described is the imagery of bright light and even fire. When the Hebrews are wandering in the wilderness, God appears to them as a pillar by day and, or a, what, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and so forth and so on, right? Fire throughout the scriptures is often indicative of the presence of God. And presumably, that's also in view here too. So this way of describing the Spirit as coming upon them uh, as tongues of fire, right, in that way, is, is very rich imagery, very rich in terms of what it's meant to convey to us. Matthew 25, 3-8, this is the parable of the ten virgins, Right, and let me read this real quick. Right, Matthew 25, right, verse 3. Where am I? There I am. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil, no oil with them. Right, so there are five of these foolish virgins. They, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oils with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I don't know you. And then Jesus adds, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now you might wonder, well, how in the world is, is uh, this text associated with the Holy Spirit? Well, the church has historically interpreted this portion of Matthew 25 as referring to the Spirit by way of the reference to oil in the parable. And so you wonder, well, what is the significance of the oil that the church would associate the oil with the Spirit? Well, here's the significance, and I'm going to talk more about this when we talk about ministries of the Spirit in a few minutes. But you'll notice this is not olive oil, right? This is not some kind of cooking oil. Rather, it is lamp oil. Well, what is lamp oil? It's an agent of illumination. It gives light. Well, the Spirit of God is the agent of illumination that God uses to give light to men. I'm going to come back and talk more about that in a few minutes. I'm not going to dwell on it now. But, uh, but the imagery here of oil, the church associates historically with the Spirit, particularly with the Spirit's ministry of giving us light, of making the truth known to us. Um, in Second uh, Corinthians 1, you have the language of seal. In fact, that passage is similar to the Ephesians passage because you have in both passages the language of the seal as well as the language of down payment or earnest. All right, but let me turn to Second Corinthians and read that and talk about the seal. Um, right, so let's see, Second Timothy one twenty two. Let me start in 21. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And of course, well, in, in what way have we been anointed? Well, we've been anointed with the Spirit if we are Christ, right? But it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee so again, you get this language of guarantee or down payment or pledge or whatever. But, but here what I'm interested in is the language of God giving us His seal. And don't take the put His seal and given us His Spirit to be two distinct things. Rather, the giving to us of the Spirit is uh, the placing of the seal of God on us. And so you, you might wonder, well, why is that significant? Why is the imagery here of a seal used? And by the way, it's not, you know, er, er, er kind of seal. Right, it's not that kind of seal. Right. Um, uh, by the way, I'm known for my animal imitations, as you can tell. <laughs> uh, 
Right, this is the kind of seal that you'd put on a document. Well, what does a seal do? It authenticates. It is the presence of the Spirit of God that authenticates that we are His people. Right? I am told, and I I say this, I want to mention this to you, but I want to also give you this uh, disclaimer. What I'm about to tell you I believe to be true, and I've been told by people, uh, by an individual I trust on this who should know, but I have not found this myself in my own research. So I think this is true, and if it's not, it ought to be. Right? I am told that in the, uh, the day in which Paul is writing, uh, in the days of the Roman Empire, right, you would seal, of course, a document by melting a little wax over it and then using a signet ring and pressing the ring in and then letting the wax dry, and that would seal it. I am told that by Roman law, <coughs> the only people who can break the seal are the ones who place the seal and the one to whom the letter is addressed. If that's true, then this might also be seen as an indication or imagery that conveys the sense of security that we have in Christ. Because the idea would be this, who, who is it that can break that seal? Well, God's the one who sealed us and He has sealed us for Himself. So the only one who could break the seal would be God Himself. And He has said He won't. Right Now again, you know, uh, I mentioned that um, if it's not true, it ought to be true. Uh, John 3, excuse me, I've got two references out of John 3. (coughs) Excuse me. And uh, this is a nice segue into the next slide, which I'm not ready for, but I'll get to in a second. (coughs) Because I want to talk about two images for the Spirit that are used in John 3 and then come back and talk about this passage in a little more detail. But you have two images or metaphors used for the Spirit in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. The first is of water, right? This is verse 5. Right? Jesus answered to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, I always ask my students when I talk about this text, when Jesus says unless one is born of water and the Spirit. I always ask my students, how many births are in view here? Right? Uh, and, and I know that there are some people who take the position that there are two different births that are being referred to here. There's birth by water and then birth by the Spirit, and these are distinct. And people who take that line typically want to identify birth by water as being physical birth, right? And that's supposed to be a reference to the breaking of, of the water. Right, just just prior to birth. Um, I think that's completely wrong. First of all, that language of birth by water, in that sense, doesn't show up anywhere uh, that uh, that we know of in in text of this era. Moreover, um, I want to suggest to you, and by the way, the construction of the Greek text here bears the point out that I'm about to make, but I, I won't go into that. Won't worry about it. Um, but <laughs> I want to suggest to you there's only one birth in view here, and the birth by the Spirit is also the birth by water. To be born of water and to be born of the Spirit are the same thing. Now, part of the reason I think this is precisely because if you go to John chapter 4, you have another conversation. That's the conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well. And the subject of that conversation, just like the conversation here between Jesus and Nicodemus, is the Spirit. And it's very clear and very explicit that when Jesus speaks with the woman at the well, the imagery he uses for the Spirit is the imagery of water. So I think you have to read what he says to Nicodemus here in light of the conversation that comes with the woman at the well. Anyway, I just make that point. Why is water used as imagery for the Spirit, I think, here, but also clearly in John 4? Why would water be appropriate? Well, first of all, like fire, water is a cleansing agent, right? And of course, in, um, in a Middle Eastern environment then as well as today, people would have been extraordinarily conscious of the fact that there ain't no life without water. Well, the Spirit of God is the one who gives life to the people of God, Jesus makes this point explicitly toward the end of John chapter 6, which I, I won't turn to now. Right? But presumably, the, 
water is appropriate as an image for the Spirit precisely because the Spirit is the agent who is at work among the people of God, helping to make them like Christ, helping to sanctify or cleanse them. And He is also the one by whom life comes. Because again, as Jesus says, there's no life apart from the Spirit. Now, if you move a few, a couple verses down, I guess three verses down actually, uh, right? you have another image here. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it, is go- or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born in the Spirit. Now, when Jesus speaks of the wind here, uh, as, as I've already mentioned, the term used for wind is pneuma, a form of pneuma. And that means wind, but it can also mean spirit. And so there's a kind of intentional double play going on, or a double meaning here, or, or a play on words. In what way is the spirit like wind? Well, Christ makes it pretty explicit here in the way he talks about the wind. You can't see the wind, but you can see its effects. So also, we don't see the Spirit, but we see the effects of the work of the Spirit around us. So also, no one can control or anticipate the wind. The wind blows wherever it will. (laughs) Maybe this is the even deeper point here about the Spirit. No one can anticipate or control the Spirit. The Spirit will do what He wants, presumably in accordance with the will of the Father, by the way. But no one can anticipate the Spirit because He will do surprising things and no one can control the Spirit. And by the way, this point on no one controlling the Spirit is a point worth dwelling on. Uh, not just the Spirit, but the Father and the Son are not manipulable. One of the key differences between the pagan gods and Yahweh, the, the God of the Scriptures, according to the Old Testament in particular, one, one of the key differences is that the gods of the nations, the pagan gods can be manipulated. You do certain things and they're obligated to respond to you in certain ways. Well, one of the points that the Old Testament makes very explicit is this is not the true God. You cannot manipulate God. He will do as He chooses. Right? In fact, uh, uh, right? who can control the Lord? He will do as He chooses. Right? That's actually a quotation out of the Old Testament. Um, but again, back to the Spirit. The Spirit is like the wind, not only insofar as the effects of His work can be seen, even though He can't be seen, but more importantly, no one can anticipate what He will do. He will do surprising things, and no one can control Him. Now, uh, I'm not suggesting the list of metaphors or images I've given you is exhaustive. As I already mentioned, there are others, but these are some of the major ones, and so I mentioned them to you. Part of the point here I I want you to see is that when the Scriptures use a metaphor or imagery to speak of the Spirit, or of the Son or the Father for that matter, there is something being conveyed that's important by way of that imagery. Right? The imagery isn't just picked because it's beautiful or poetic, though it may be beautiful and poetic. It's picked because it conveys some truth. And so we do wise to look for that. Pay attention to that. Now, I want to close the discussion of the Spirit's ministry, or at least this session, by talking, uh, or, or can close the, conclude the discussion of the Spirit by talking explicitly about the ministry of the Spirit. And I want to draw our attention to three aspects or three uh, things in particular that the Spirit is involved in doing that are critically important for us as Christians. I am not claiming to you yet again to be giving you an exhaustive list of the ministries of the Spirit. Um, So I'm not saying these are the only things the Spirit does, but for us as believers, these are three of the really critical things that we need to recognize the Spirit is about. And first, I want to point out that one of the ministries of the Spirit is this, right? The Spirit is the one who opens the eyes of human beings to the truth about God. In fact, there is no understanding of the things of God apart from the work of the Spirit of God. Right? And and here I've got several texts in mind. I'm going to refer first to the Corinthians passage, right? This is 1 Corinthians 2, 11 and following. Let me turn there real quick. So I'm not going in precisely the order I have these texts listed, but I still want to talk about them. All right, so 1 Corinthians 2. Oh. Right, verse 11. 
Paul writes, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that is the Holy Spirit, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Then 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him. And he, the natural person, is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. What I'm interested in primarily in this text is the indication we get very clearly from Paul that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. If one is to understand the truth of God, it is because the Spirit opens one's eyes to that truth. And if the Spirit doesn't open someone's eyes to the truth, they will not see it. They will not see the truth. Right? Another way to get at this point is is to say this. You're not Christ's. You're not a believer because you're smart. Right? It's not that humanly speaking, in your own intellectual prowess, you got it. If you believe the truth of God, it's because the Spirit of God has led you to it and opened your eyes to it. This is an important point. None of us can take credit for seeing the truth of God. Because had He not opened our eyes to it, we would not see it. Right? In fact, it's interesting in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul makes the point, you know, consider yourselves, brothers, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but I think this is fairly accurate paraphrase. Consider your, yourselves, brothers, uh, when you were called to Christ, you weren't nothing. Right? In fact, there weren't many among you wise or noble or strong. In fact, when God chose you, He chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the ignoble things of the world to shame the noble, and the, uh, the weak things of the, of the world to, uh, to shame the strong. Why? So that it might be clear that it's Him doing it. So that we can't take credit for what is His work. So this is an important point, right? Spiritual things are spiritually discerned, and one of the ministries the Spirit has is to bring people to an understanding of the truth of God. And as long as we're talking about this kind of issue in the reading of Scripture, I want to also uh, emphasize your hope of understanding the Scriptures is not grounded in some method of reading. It's grounded in the work of the Spirit within the community of the people of God. In other words, the, the promise that we have that as the people of God, we will be able to rightly divide the Word of God is a promise based on the work of the Spirit of God, not upon our cleverness as readers. And that's an important point to keep in mind too. Now that being said, I'm, I'm not going to turn us, <clears throat> because of time constraints, I'm not going to turn us to Ephesians 1, except to point out that in Ephesians 1, 15 and following, when Paul prays that the Ephesian believers will know the hope that they have in Christ, his prayer is that they will know this because the Spirit reveals it to them. A clear indication that Paul thinks apart from the work of the Spirit opening their eyes to it, they're not going to know it. Uh, but I'm not going to turn to that text because of time constraints. Let me turn you back to John 3, if indeed you were there with me earlier. Um, right. The, the discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus is very instructive precisely because this conversation illustrates the very point Jesus is making to Nicodemus in the conversation. Right? So follow this with me, right? Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Two quick comments. First of all, notice he comes at night. In the providence of God, the fact that this takes place at night is symbolic of the fact that Nicodemus is not going to understand. And you compare that with chapter 4, where the conversation with the woman at the well takes place at noon, in the broad daylight of noon, 
which in the providence of God is symbolic that she will understand what Jesus has to say. I'll come back and talk more about that in a minute. The other comment is this. When Nicodemus says to Jesus, we know that you're a teacher come from God, uh, other leaders of the Jews will come and say things to Jesus that are flattering, and we know that they're not sincere. But in this case, it's pretty clear Nicodemus is sincere. Right? So he comes to Jesus and he says this, and Jesus, in his inimitable way, Cuts right to the heart of the matter, right? No chit-chat from Jesus here. No, oh, thank you, or even, oh, you give me too much credit or any of that, right? He just cuts to the chase. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Time out. Nicodemus is no idiot. So when he says this, you know, can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? It's not that Nicodemus is an idiot and flat-footedly thinks that's literally what Jesus means. The point, rather, is he doesn't understand what Jesus does mean. And this is a very uh, expressive way of saying, I don't know what you mean. And so then Jesus says, as we already read, Jesus answered, truly is truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So this point about the wind blowing wherever it is and not being controlled or anticipated by anyone is likened unto the ministry of the Spirit. Okay? And then Nicodemus said to them, "How can or said to him, how can these things be?" And Jesus answered him, "Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things?" Now here's what's interesting: the way Jesus responds to Nicodemus toward the end of that passage makes it clear that on Jesus's view, Nicodemus already ought to already know this, in virtue of the fact that he's a teacher of the Jews. In other words, in virtue of the fact that he should know the Old Testament, he should not be surprised at what Jesus says. Because from Jesus' point of view, what he's telling Nicodemus is there clearly in the Old Testament to be seen. And yet Nicodemus doesn't understand it. And, And he ought to. Because of who he is and what he does. Now, compare that with the conversation of the woman at the well. Right? The conversation with the woman at the well... And of course, this takes place in daylight, which is symbolic, as I've already mentioned. But the reason it takes place at noon is because the woman at the well is a woman with a very bad reputation. So she doesn't come early in the morning with the other women of the, of the village in order to get a water. She comes when she can come alone because she doesn't want to be open to the ridicule of her reputation. So she's a woman... She's a woman of bad reputation, and moreover, she's a Samaritan. Now, that's worse from a Jewish point of view than a Gentile. And, of course, you understand Gentile bad from a Jewish perspective, right? right? In fact, how did Jews refer to Gentiles? Well, they referred to Gentiles as dogs. By the way, there's a reason for that I won't go into, but right, they refer to them as dogs. Samaritans are half-breeds. Oh, no, that song by Cher is now ringing in my head. <laughs> Right, And from the Jewish point of view, that's even worse. So she's a woman, which of course has implications in this social context. She's a woman of bad reputation, which has even deeper ramifications, and she's Samaritan. Now the conversation between her and Jesus is also about the Spirit. Right? He says to her, let me see... Um, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks drinks of this water will be thirsty again, the water of that well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up in eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, 
I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. No, not in the way you meant it, right? The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And she wants to argue with him about theology. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. And then jump down. 28, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out to town out of the town and were coming to him. And, and it's clear from the way this text flows, when she asked this, it's because she's come to believe this is indeed the Christ. So here you have a conversation with a Samaritan woman of bad reputation. And the conversation with Jesus is about the Spirit of God and the work of God and the fact that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. You must worship Him in spirit and truth. And she gets it. Now what's interesting about this is You'd expect Nicodemus to get it, but he doesn't. You wouldn't expect the Samaritan woman to get it, but she does. And the point isn't the Samaritan woman is brighter than Nicodemus. That's not the point at all. The point of all is an illustration of the very point Jesus has already made to Nicodemus. You can't anticipate what the Spirit will do. He will do surprising things. And so what does the Spirit do in these two chapters? He opens the eyes of someone you wouldn't expect Him to open the eyes of, and He doesn't open the eyes of somebody you would. At least not then. We know later Nicodemus does see the truth and come to believe. But at that point, he doesn't yet. So this is an illustration of the fact that it is the Spirit who leads us to see the truth about God. It's not our own native intelligence, if you will, that gets us there. By the way, this point, uh, and I'm not going to pursue this, but this point gets made all the way through the Gospels. Right? Luke chapter 1, you have this contrast between Zechariah the priest and Mary, the peasant girl. Now, she's Jewish, but still, she's a young girl, a peasant girl. Well, Zechariah has Gabriel appear to him with astonishing news, and when he has this happen, he's in the temple. And what is his response to this surprising news about the coming birth of his son, John? He doesn't believe. Mary has Gabriel visit her with even more astonishing news, namely that she who is a virgin will bear a child, and that child will be none other than the child of God, the Son of God. That's even more remarkable. And how does she respond? Well, she doesn't understand it. How can this be? Right? And... You know, Gabriel explains it to her. But having had it explained to her, she believes it. In fact, she says, let it be to your servant as you have said. Well, this is another illustration of the very point. You would expect Zechariah to believe what God says to him, and he doesn't. And you wouldn't, comparatively speaking, expect Mary to understand or believe, and yet she does. Another illustration. I could keep going here. This is all the way through the Gospels. Uh, take the contrast between the Roman centurion and other Jew, and, and Jews of the day, uh, right? Jesus says of the Roman centurion whose servant he heals, I've not seen faith such as his in all of Israel. High praise, right? I, I gotta stop. I know I don't have time to keep going in this vein. So, one of the things that the Spirit does that we need to be aware of and thankful for is this. He is the one who, by the will of the Father, opens the eyes of those who will see the truth and hear the truth and believe. And if not for the work of the Spirit, you would not be Christ's. So also, the Spirit is the one who, by the providence of the Father and the Son, equips and leads the people of God in righteousness. Galatians 5, this is a text that you're probably pretty familiar with. This is, of course, 
the text that refers explicitly to the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, you see. Contrasted with the works of the flesh. But I say, Paul writes, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those, I'm sorry, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, and he gives a list of them. But then 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Let us, uh, oh, I'm sorry, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And I'll stop there. Again, for reasons of, uh, of considerations of time, I won't pursue this in any more detail. But the Spirit is the one who indwells the people of God that they, as they seek to follow in obedience after His leading, that they might be made like Christ and equipped for every good work. Right? So the Spirit is the one who opens our eyes to the truth, and the Spirit is the one who works within the life of the people of God to help them become transformed to become like Christ. And then finally, for, for my purposes, I assume you all know this, but if you don't, you should. You know, the Spirit intercedes for you. The Spirit prays for you. Um, this is uh, Romans 8. Oh, I'm going the wrong way. I'm never going to get to Romans going that way. Okay, Romans 8. Right, Paul writes, this is verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And I'm going to stop there again because of time constraints. But um, this is remarkable, and I'm sure this isn't a point that uh, that you're unaware of, but it is a point worth uh, keeping in mind and reflecting on and being grateful with respect to. According to Paul, when you don't know what to pray for or how to pray, God Himself, in the person of the Spirit, is praying for you and interceding for you. I have I have friends who are Roman Catholic who uh, you know as most Roman Catholics do pray to Mary and ask Mary to pray for them. I'm going to pass no comment on that at the moment because that's not my topic. I just want to point out, wow, I got the Spirit praying for me, and that's even better.